Welcome to this Sydney Ideas talk. Uh, it's co-hosted by Sydney Ideas and by the Department of Government and International Relations. My name is James Loxton, and I am a lecturer in the Department of Government and International Relations. It is a huge pleasure for me to introduce uh, Lucan Wei. Lucan Wei is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto and he is an expert on democratization and authoritarianism, with a particular focus on the former Soviet Union. He is the author of two important books, uh, his 2010 Cambridge University Press book with Stephen Lubitsky called Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and just recently, in 2015, a book with Johns Hopkins University Press called Pluralism by Default, Weak Autocrats and the Rise of Competitive Politics. He actually uh, spoke on this topic yesterday, and it was a, it was a great talk. He's now working on a new book, uh, also with Steve Levitsky, about revolutions and authoritarian durability, and that's what he's gonna be talking about tonight. Lucan has also published uh, numerous articles in journals such as World Politics, Comparative Politics, uh, Perspectives on Politics, and uh, the Journal of Democracy. Um, as far as this topic here, if you want to know kind of more about the, I'm sure Lucan will talk about it in a lot of detail in the talk, but he also has a great piece uh, in 2013 that came out with Journal of Democracy called uh, The Durability of Revolutionary Regimes, which kind of sketches what that argument is all about. Um, for those of you who don't know, and Lucan, I don't want to make you blush, but uh, Lucan is kind of a big deal in the world of comparative politics and in the, the world of, uh, you know, particularly in the study of uh, of political regimes and regime transitions. Uh, competitive authoritarianism, which he uh, wrote with Steve Levitsky, was a really high impact book. And I think that this uh, new book on the durability of revolutionary regimes has the potential to be as high impact of a book. One commentator once described uh, Lucan and his longtime friend and collaborator, Steve Levitsky, as the Juan Linz and Alfred Steppen of their generation. Um, that's really high praise, and I happen to think that that praise was accurate. So please join me in giving a, a, a welcome to uh, Luke and Wade. Great, thank you, Jamie. It's um, a real pleasure to be here. Um, I think I'm now as far away from home as I've ever been. So uh, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> um, so this is a, a book that Stephen, as uh, Jamie mentioned, that Stephen Levitsky and I are now working on. Um, we're probably about two or three years away from completion, so this is a nice time in a book manuscript because I'm, I'm, I'm open to comments, and so yeah, I can still change it. You know, you know, once you publish it, all criticism is enemy fire. So, but now this is sort of I can accept it, be nice, and sort of say yes, maybe I'll incorporate that. So I really encourage um, comments. Uh, basically, sort of. The core of this book, um, you know, the bigger, big question that this book investigates is what explains authoritarian durability? Why do some authoritarian regimes, you know, um, survive, you know, for a short period of time while others survive for quite a long period of time? And we focus in particular on what we call on revolutionary regimes, which have been among the most durable authoritarian regimes in the modern era. And probably the only uh, form of authoritarianism that has lasted longer has been sort of the Persian Gulf monarchies like Saudi Arabia, but really revolutionary regimes, uh, Soviet Russia, China, and the like, have survived um, you know, very, for a very long time. And, and in fact, the average tenure for revolutionary regimes has been 31 years. 
compared to non-revolutionary regimes, which is about 16 years. This is based on a data set of authoritarian regimes since 1900 that we have put together. Um, and it's not just that the revolutionary regimes have survived for a long time, um, but that they've survived in the face of massive crisis. Uh, we have large-scale famine in the, in the Soviet Union um, in the 30s, China in the, in the late 50s, North Korea in the 1990s, severe economic downturn in Russia in the 30s, Cuba in the 1990s, and also they survived in the face of enormous external pressure. Russia, after 1917, Russia in 1941 when it was invaded by uh, the Nazis. Um, we also have other examples of Cuba, Iran, Vietnam, which all face enormous pressure from the outside, but nonetheless remain resilient. And finally, uh, I'm doing the China chapter right now, they even survived in sort of, kind of self-inflicted crises, such as the uh, Cultural Revolution. So what do we mean by revolutionary regime? I have a very specific definition. The term revolutionary is very widely, you know, broadly used. It's been kind of diminished in recent years. People tend to refer to it as any kind of regime in which there was an irregular transfer of power. We have a much more older, old-fashioned, Scottspolian, Huntingtonian definition. And we really refer to authoritarian regimes founded and led by movements from below that have engaged in sustained violent struggle for power and whose establishment is accompanied by radical transformation of the state and efforts to transform the social order. And so this is what really what distinguishes um, these kind of regimes from the vast majority of, of other authoritarian regimes. And what and so we've gone through the you know our data set of authority of authoritarian regimes since 1900, about 350, and we've come to sort of about 19 regimes that we um, code as meeting those criteria. Um, I can talk about that in the Q&A um, and how we sort of um, arrived at that, um, you know, this coding and if there are cases we're missing, you know, I think we got pretty much all the cases. There's some sort of borderline ones. But what we find is that, you know, when we look at this set of cases, is that, you know, some um, did not survive very long. Taliban, Pol Pot, uh, and others, Nicaragua, you know, survived for less than 10 years, um, or in the case of Guinea-Bissau, suffered multiple military coups. Um, but the vast majority um, survived for, you know, 35 years or more. We, it's about 70% of these regimes survived for at least 35 years. So, um, and some, as in Mexico, for, you know, over, over 80 years. Um, so they tend to be, have, you know, survived for quite a, a long period of time. Um, so these tend to be quite durable. And it's not just that they're durable. It's, you know, there aren't, you know, there aren't that many of them, but they, they are world historical in the sense that um, they've not only survived for a long time, but they've created a lot of trouble for the global environment. You know, they've kind of, they've shaped history in a profound way. The Soviet Union, um, you know, um, the Russian Revolution, China, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, these are all, these are countries that have really um, been important movers um, in, the, in global history. So they're important to understand, um, both for sort of abstract reasons, because they're just remarkably durable, but also because they shape world history, even if there aren't that many of them. Um, so they're really, I think, important to understand in their own right. Um, so um, we do find, we, um, I won't be focusing very much on this, but we've done a, um, a statistical analysis, and we find that revolutionary origins predict survival, even when we control for a wide variety of um, range of economic and institutional variables, um, military rule, economic downturn, oil, you name it. 
um, any any variable that we could find, you basically put in the regression, and and um, and and revolution origins really shows up as a robust predictor of durability um, and survival. So the question is, so why have they been so durable? And that's really the focus of this talk, which is going to be, I'm going to go through a, a few cases, um, cases that work for our argument, but also cases that don't. Um, and so one of the obvious, most obvious counter um, hypotheses, if you look at this set of regimes, is that a lot of these have quite well-established ruling parties. Um, and in the literature on authoritarianism, um, there's a, you know, quite extensive literature in the last 10 or 15 years that talks about the importance of ruling parties, the existence of well-institutionalized ruling parties as um, helping to enhance the durability of authoritarian regimes. Um, this comes from the work of Barbara Geddes. Um, and in, indeed, um, Iran is about the only case um, of a revolutionary regime that does not have a really you know, well-established ruling party. And, and, and parties are considered important because they give elites stake, long-term stake in the regime. They lengthen time horizons, which means that elites, leaders are much less likely to defect when the, when the regime, you know, when, think, when they lose you know, leadership battles and the like. So there's you know, good reason to think that. So the question is, maybe it's just, you know, it's not revolutionary origin per se, but maybe it's just the fact that you know, all these countries have these, these well-institutionalized ruling parties. Um, I think that's uh, clearly not sufficient. Um, revolutionary origins is still significant, very quite significant in predicting um, durability, even when we control for party. And in fact, um, this is done by my much smarter graduate students. It's one of the advantages of being a senior professor. You can sort of get people who are smarter than you to help you. Um, it's actually on the job market. so. Great guy. Um, um, and as we see, you know, this, is, this shows you sort of um, single party revolutionary, and this tells you um, how long they survive. And basically, for revolutionary regimes, among revolutionary regimes, there's a 62% likelihood of them surviving for at least 40 years. It's quite durable as compared to um, single party regimes that allow you know, a 24% chance of them surviving for 40 years. So there's a, a substantial difference. Um, uh, between you know the two, and, and clearly revolutionary origins by itself is important. Furthermore, um, uh, you know another reason to be skeptical of parties is that if you look closely at the case studies, which um, which we're doing, is that it's less clear that party per se is so important. First of all, in the you know paradigmatic cases of of Russia and China, there were significant periods of time when the ruling party was simply non-existent or sort of completely you know, decimated you know, under Mao and the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s. Um, and we'll talk about it in the Soviet Union in the 30s when they killed 80% you know, of the regional party apparatus. I mean, basically decimated the party. And yet the, yet the regime survived. So if, the, if it's simply the institutions that's causing it, you know, how did they survive um, when the institutions basically disappear? Furthermore, in many cases, um, the party in Cuba, which didn't exist, for the first years of power in Mexico, first decade, um, you know, didn't exist for a week. And then, of course, we have Iran, which I mentioned before, which did not have a party. Um, so it's clearly something more than simply party. Um, and, and, what, and in fact, what we, what's interesting um, about these cases 
is that almost all of these regimes are born weak. Um, when they come to power, they barely control the country. They tend to have relatively weak parties, you know, you know, unruly coalitions, and uh, weak control over the state. This is um, a picture of the uh, revolution, the Russian Revolution in 1917, when the Bolsheviks came to power, incredibly weak. And basically what happens, which is quite interesting, and this just to get us to understanding why they're so durable, is that they have a weak revolutionary regime, and what do they do? So you might think you come to power, you're very weak, um, you want to you know, make accommodations, sort of make, make, make allies, make you know, deals with um, you know, powerful local groups, you know, make external allies, um, that would be one thing to do. Um, revolutionary regimes do not do that. Instead, they do CS. Can anybody get what, guess what CS is? Crazy shit. <laughs> um, you know, for example, Iran in 1979, they come to power, and they basically you know, um, take over the embassy of the most powerful country in the world. Um, Russia comes to power in 1917. They declare war on capitalism, and, you know, resulting in the fact that literally every country is against them. Um, and basically what this ironically does, um, this sort of seemingly irrational behavior, is it actually enhances their durability, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. Basically what this does, in a nutshell, is this creates um, conflict, that creates war, both internal civil war, but external war. And this war, a military conflict, in turn does three things. It creates this intense siege mentality and sort of hyper um, cohesion. It creates a, a very strong, powerful, and loyal, loyal army. And it also um, provides the opportunity for the regime to destroy all forms of alternatives that might exist within society. The old army, the church, civil society, other former opposition parties. And all of this does is it, it greatly enhances the durability of the regime. Um, and that's, in a nutshell, the argument. Just to go through, basically, the first thing is it does, it creates um, unity or cohesion. Uh, when, when the, part, the, the new regime goes through um, this violent struggle, in many cases, it's created this strong military ethos. This is not simply normal political battle. This is, you know, these are kind of top, creates the necessity for top-down structures. It also creates this hyper-paranoia and fear of counter-revolution, because literally everyone is against you. you know, even paranoid people have enemies, <laughs> right? Um, and, and defection is not is, is basically equal to treason. So the cost of defection really increases that you know, because if you defect, there's a, you know, your, the whole revolution will be under threat. So there's a real sort of um, uh, you know hyper attention to to sort of to, to loyalty and discipline that doesn't for the most part exist in non-revolutionary parties. Second, war motivates the, the building of a strong army because. Um, these regimes come from outside the old regime. They have to, for the most part, build these new armies from scratch. Um, this is very important. I think, in some ways, this may be the most important um, causal mechanism. Um, so there are very incredibly tight ties between security services and and the ruling party, and as a result, you have, you know, very few coups, military coups, in these kinds of regimes. And in fact, this is among the most striking data. They're almost among our cases, there are two cases um, with successful military coups in and, and, um, Bissau and Algeria. And uh, there are 10 times fewer attempted coups in revolutionary regimes. I mean, this is quite striking because as Milan Spolik has shown, uh, one of the biggest threats to authoritarian regimes is not protest from below, but military coup from within. And these regimes basically 
they, they deal with this. It's almost, these never happen, um, even when you might expect them to. Um, and finally, uh, war, you know, counter-revolution war encouraged the destruction of all older centers of power, which basically means that the new regime, when it emerges, um, if it emerges, uh, has basically no um, enemy, you know, no viable alternative. So this gives the regime enormous room for error to really screw things up and they can still survive because there's no other, nothing to replace them. And this we'll see when we talk about the Soviet Union and China as well. Um, okay, so today I'm gonna to talk first about a paradigmatic case, um, the USSR, which is, in many ways is um, representative, you know, broadly speaking of, of most of the cases and uh, most of these revolutionary cases, we see how this sort of causal mechanism work. But I, you know, I, I never like, um, presentations that kind of present a just-so story, like as if the, the argument always works. I'm always a little suspicious, but then it feels like it's just almost tautological. So I'm actually going to spend probably much more time than I should on the cases that don't work. Right? Just because it's part of it kind of helps us take apart the theory and really understand it better. So the first is Guinea-Bissau, which is um, the exception that proves the rule, and then Khmer Rouge, which is simply the exception, um, which I think it sort of kind of helps us understand some of the theory. Um, so you have to bear with me. Um, and maybe this was a mistake. I don't know. I just, you know, in my kind of haze of, of jet lag, I thought, oh, I, I have cases that don't work. That's just a great idea. So maybe I'll, I'll think that's really stupid after I give this presentation. I don't know. Anyways, um, but just to remind you, these are very much the minority of cases, but nonetheless quite interesting. Okay, so the Soviet Union, uh, the first, you know, modern revolution um, is in some ways a paradigmatic case. The USSR may have collapsed. Um, um, 25 years ago, and it's really depressing because all my students now were born after the Soviet Union existed, which existed, which I think should be illegal since it's just too depressing. Um, anyways, um, but it was a Soviet regime. It survived for 74 years, which is quite long compared to other authoritarian regimes, and it survived for, um, you know, in the face of multiple crises, mass rebellion, and most notably the Nazi invasion of 1941, which I'm going to talk about very, very briefly. Um, and, and what's interesting about this case is, um, in some ways, you know, many, the standard view of, of the Soviet Union is a classic institutional argument. You had the strong Communist Party. Samuel Huntington famously called the CPSU, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the ultimate organizational weapon and the chief Bolshevik contribution to modern politics. And in that party, you know, the origins of that party are very clear. In 1902, Lenin had the idea of a party. You know, this was a, a novel creation which had a profound, it became the model for, for authoritarian parties for the next hundred years. And he said you know, had to create a small, disciplined, vanguard party, right? So, so maybe this is simply a story of institutional creation. You had this smart guy, Lenin, came up with this amazing idea, you know, evil, but amazing, um, of a, you know, this party. And that's why you have a durable Soviet Union, because indeed they have a very strong communist party. Um, the problem with that are two things. One, for the first, um, 15 years um, before, before the revolution, the party is, in, in fact, despite Lenin's best wishes, completely indisciplined. Obedience to Lenin, as um, scholars have noted, was the exception rather than the rule. Um, and this, you know, Lenin wanted there to be a party that was disciplined, but it wasn't. In fact, ironically, the Bolsheviks were not Leninist in the sense of being a top-down structure before 1917. And this really changes during the Russian Civil Furthermore, during under Stalin in the 1930s, 
the party, as I mentioned, was decimated. 80% of the regional leadership was eliminated. So the party institutions are so important. How does it survive when, they, when, when Stalin destroys it just before the Nazi invasion? I mean, this is crazy, right? Um, so how does this happen? Okay, this is how it happens. First of all, uh, Bolsheviks come to power in 1917. They engage in, um, in crazy shit. Um, they declare war on capitalism. As a result, almost inevitably, there's this vicious civil war between 1918 and 1921. And this civil war, in turn, creates this hyper-siege mentality, powerful and loyal security services, and destruction of alternative centers of power. Um, first, um, uh, so this is what they do. They declare, sorry, they declare war um, on, on the domestic class structure, and they also declare war on capitalism, um, Lenin's most famous mixed metaphor. As a result, Russia becomes a socialist oasis in the middle of a raging imperialist sea. So, you know, it's evocative. It sort of doesn't really make sense anyway, but you sort of get the point, right? Um, they were sort of literally had, you know, surrounded everybody who was out to get them, what they called capitalist encirclement. You know, literally the world, as the first socialist regime, everybody was out to get them. Um, this creates a civil war, which creates a um, hyper-siege mentality. The civil war um, was a profoundly important formative experience for the Soviet Union. All, almost all leaders until the 1950s had been very active in the civil war. And this basically created a disciplined party. It, can, it was a life and death struggle, convinced local officials to align themselves to the center. It created a hyper fear of conspiracy and foreign invasion, which was real. You know, the, the, you know, literally the allies were invading them. This was not sort of imagined. Right, um, and you had you know um, spies everywhere, um, and so he created this sort of hyper uh, fear of counter revolution and paranoia, which really contributed to this um, desire to remain highly cohesive. And finally, I think this is important. Under Lenin, this was a, this was sort of an intellectual party. They, they sat around and they argued epistemology, and some of the one of the first disagreements in the party was literally over epistemology. I, I kid you not. Um, um, but then the war happens, and you know all that's gone. Intellectual, intellectual. They bring in the, the, the military, literally, and they, it, you know, becomes a party not of intellectuals, but a party of you know the, the leather jacketed thugs. And so it becomes a really different party because of the war. Because you know they're not interested in debating ideas; they just want to get you know shit done and, and remain unified and win the war. And as a result, you have a you know a highly cohesive elite um, that emerges out of this. Second, uh, you know, is, is the security services, the KGB. Um, now, initially, as some of you may know, Lenin had, they had mentioned socialism that, you know, when socialism had to happen, you would have a diminishing, the, the disappearance of the state. Didn't turn out so much that way, quite the opposite. The, the KGB, which was formed as the Cheka, was a kind of a product of hasty innovation, was considered temporary. However, because of the sort of rampant you know, threats of counter-revolution, the Chaka Security Services gains enormous power, um, you know, becomes um, incredibly powerful during the Civil War. And this, you know, becomes the basis, and, and now we have Putin, right? This is like, and this is where Putin comes from, quite literally. Um, and the Chaka is, um, quite, you know, fused with the party. Um, I mean, this is interesting. I mean, generally speaking, revolutionary regimes, the military is powerful for reasons that are, you know, not necessarily clear in the Soviet Union, the military is not so powerful as the security services, but basically it's the same idea. Um, and the Chikabika is intensely loyal to the party, infused with the party, and so it becomes a very powerful source of durability. Finally, 
Uh, the Civil War results in the destruction of the old army. Um, after the war, the army is either co-opted, dead, or in exile. They kill, of course, the old czars. The landowners are wiped out. Other socialist parties are completely sidelined. So the Bolsheviks emerge basically as like the only ones until the only game in town in the early 20s. So I mean, you know, um, a lot of uh, the Soviet Union changes a lot um, from the early 20s to the 30s and 40s, um, but some of the core elements of the regime, a relatively cohesive party, um, a powerful security apparatus, it emerges directly from the Civil War. Um, so things change a lot, but sort of the core sort of pillars of the of, of Soviet durability emerge um, from the Civil War. Okay, so so then the argument we make in the book is that uh, this allows them to survive crisis. First of all. You have um, a rebellion in 1921, um, which is, you know, it's a, it's a serious rebellion because it's the, the, the Red Navy, the Kronstadt uprising. I mean, it's sort of like in the United States if, if African-Americans decided to exit the Democratic Party. This would create a huge identity crisis. I mean, this is the core constituency of the Bolsheviks, these revolutionary soldiers. And so there's a, it's a real crisis for the regime. But because of this hyper-fear of counter-revolution, there's a sense that even though the sort of the good soldiers, the revolutionary soldiers, are the ones that are defecting, under no circumstances can they allow, allow this to happen because quite rightly they fear that if the if the Bolsheviks split, counter-revolution will happen. And even people who are in, in the Mensheviks, you know, even as much as they hated the Bolsheviks who were repressing them, they still still feared counter-revolution by the whites more than they feared the Bolsheviks. So as a result, everybody unified, you had a powerful army in Chaka which suppressed the rebellion. And indeed, in, in a number of cases, revolutionary regimes have been very good at repressing rebellion. I mean, you know, from China in, in 1989 to uh, Iran, and most recently in 2009, these are um, people who are sort of skilled at mass violent repression, um, and they're highly motivated. So, you know, that's one of the aspects of revolutionary regimes is they tend to, you know, be quite adept at, at mass violence. Um, and they have a kind of strong stomach for that. Second, um, you have, which is always a threat in, in any authoritarian regime, you have very quickly the death um, of Lenin, you know, almost you know, immediately after they consolidate power in 1922. This creates a real crisis in the party. A lot of people assume that when Lenin dies, the, the Bolsheviks will die as well. And it also creates a huge conflict between Trotsky and Stalin. Trotsky is the war hero. Stalin is this great bureaucrat. No one's really heard of him. And what's interesting is that Stalin's able to, even though you know, he's sort of this no-name person, is able to beat Trotsky, who's, you know, who's, who's basically second to Lenin in terms of, everybody knows Trotsky. Even, even you guys know Trotsky. Um, everybody knows Trotsky. Um, and what's interesting about this event is that there's probably no one you know, it's hard to imagine any more intense hate than Trotsky's hatred for Stalin, right? But nonetheless, the, what's interesting about Trotsky's behavior during this period is that he basically maintained party discipline. And he, um, because he's, um, even though he just joined the Bolsheviks in 1917, but he, he the fear of counter-revolution is so strong that Trotsky's able to basically, initially, want to subordinate his, 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 his ambition and, um, and, and basically maintains and doesn't challenge initially um, Stalin in the early in the early years when he could have, and, and basically only challenges him after Stalin you know kicks him, kicks him out of the country when it's kind of too late. Um, 
And so what you have in the situation is that even though many people like uh, Lenin's widow, Nadia Krupska, who really don't like Stalin and would prefer Trotsky, you know, don't want to split the party, therefore sort of put their, you know, you know, tell basically, you know, the opposition, you know, don't challenge Trotsky, I mean, don't challenge Stalin because we don't want to split the revolution. And so this basically allows them to survive, the party remains unified around Stalin and allows them to survive the succession crisis. Just going to quickly go, go through, um, you know, the thing about, you know, revolutionary regimes, and in some ways, what's interesting about them is they both, they, the revolutionary origins generate crisis, but it also allows them to survive crisis. So, I mean, in some ways, I mean, one of the most puzzling aspects of uh, Soviet history is the great terror of the 1930s, when you basically had an elite literally consuming itself, committing suicide. I mean, you know, 50, 70 percent of the National Party apparatus, 80, literally 80 percent of the um, of the regional apparatus, literally dead, right? Killed them. And so, the, the two questions that emerge with this: one, how you know, how, you know, you know, so many explanations focus on the person of Stalin. You know, he's a paranoid son of a bitch. You know, he, he, you know, his mother, you know, swaddled him too tightly, which always makes one kill every, you know, <laughs> right, whatever. But, um, but, the, but that doesn't, you know, that's probably true. He's, he's probably paranoid, but that doesn't explain why he was able to gain the cooperation of the, his apparatus to actually do this crazy stuff, right? And I think it's the, the revolutionary origins help us understand this, that basically this, hyper-siege mentality created this incredible fear of war. They really expected that at any moment um, Britain would invade them. And in the 1930s, they were right, because actually you know, the Nazis were going to invade them. Um, but what this stuff, and so, so typically you think of like in, in non-revolutionary regimes, well, how, do, how do these regimes re respond to war? Well, you know, the first thing you do is unite the population and you against the external enemy. Well, these are revolutionary regimes. You're scared both, it's a two-front war. You're scared both of external invasion, but also you're scared of domestic enemies, the fifth column, right? And that motivates, you know, that logic, which really makes sense to these communists, because they, they grew up in the Civil War where there are constant, you know, internal enemies. And so Stalin basically says, you know, if we're going to survive war, we have to kill off the internal enemies, otherwise we're going to lose the war. And basically, that combined with a very strong security apparatus, which is very important, allows him to, you know, wipe out the party, which is crazy. Um, but because, I mean, I think, um, because of this sort of siege mentality, um, it makes this sort of Stalin's logic very plausible to these people who are really bred in this intensely violent um, Civil War era. Finally, this in turn allows them to, you know, deal with probably the most severe crisis, which is the Nazi invasion of, of 1941, and what, you know, basically, you know, there are a lot of reasons why um, the USSR won to have nothing to do with their revolutionary origins, the size of the country, land lease, you name it. But what is more puzzling is in the first few weeks of the invasion, Stalin was completely unprepared, right? Um, and, and basically this, you know, the Nazis, as most many of you know, you know, had enormous successes. The army completely dissolved, right? And um, it was a clear disaster, and it was clearly Stalin's fault. And normally what would happen in most regimes is that either it'd be mass rebellion or there'd be a coup. I mean, if anybody deserved to be crewed, it's Stalin in 1941. I mean, you know, he just screwed up royally. It's really all his fault. But yet, he, and, 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 and many people, you know, he, he expected there to be a coup. Um, but there was no alternative. 
and the army and the, and the KGB did not exist autonomously from Stalin. So as a result, there was no coup. Um, and what's interesting, and also you had uh, they destroyed, you know, literally during the Great Terror, they destroyed all, all anybody who could challenge Stalin. So you know, again, this sort of enormous room for error. Um, and and so as a result, um, he's able to hang on to power, and then other factors like the winter and geography come in and allow him to sort of survive and win the wars. But I think the revolutionary origins are really important to explain the first you know, month, month and a half when you know, most regimes would have just collapsed. And certainly you know, Hitler expected them to collapse. And in general, we also find um, in other cases, you know, in, you know, I'm happy to talk about it in Q&A, um, you know, China, um, the, you know, who, uh, Mao, who abuses the army in the 50s and 60s, you know, which normally would have created a very serious coup threat, but because you had this tight fusion of party and military, the, the army simply doesn't have the autonomy to engage in coup behavior. So the, the regime essentially survives. Um, and this, I think, is a very, you know, thinking about the importance of these different causal mechanisms, I think this is very important. Okay, so that's the case that works. And, you know, and, and, and it really explains Iran, it explains Cuba, um, it explains Vietnam, explains you know, most of the big cases that you've heard of. Um, certainly it does very, this kind of broad explanation, um, this you know, so this sort of really kind of, this sort of really captures most of the cases, but not all cases, right? And so I'm going to sort of, against my better judgment, you know, talk about the cases that don't work. And there are two cases that don't work. Basically, Guinea-Bissau, um, I don't know whether there are any Guinea-Bissau experts in this room. Um, it's a great case. Uh, you know. um, and which basically survived for 25 years, which is not so bad, but it had multiple coups. It was highly unstable. And then you have this uh, flame-out case of Pol Pot, who um, um, basically you know, survived barely four years. I'm going to briefly talk about these two cases. So first, you know, the mystery of Guinea-Bissau. Uh, the Guinea-Bissau regime was... Um, Guinea-Bissau was under Portuguese colonial rule um, until the early 70s. Um, you had this, this um, liberate, violent liberation struggle throughout the 60s uh, led by the PAGC. Um, and it's a you know, so, socialist, you know, Afro-socialist. They um, gained power um, in 1974 when there's a Portuguese coup. Um, and this is very similar to Mozambique and, and Angola. Um, these other kind of socialist revolutionary regimes that emerged in the 1970s. Um, and so they really had you know, quite extended violent struggle. Um, they were, in fact, militarily among the strongest of these um, liberation struggles, interestingly. And, you know, if you were a student in the 1970s, you would have heard about Guinea-Bissau. It's sad that you probably have not. Um, but nonetheless, but then the regime emerges against, you know, against my book. They're weak. They have an internal coup five years later. Um, and the regime ends in um, 1999. So it's a really unstable, weak case. So the question is why? You know, why, why doesn't my causal mechanism work? And it turns out for a very identifiable reason. Um, so this is, yeah, this is um, here. Um, which is that, that the, it was, you know, it, it was, they didn't engage in radical social transformation. They nationalized property. They created socialism. Um, but in contrast to the, uh, some of the other cases, they um, were led by moderate, you know, moderate radicals. I used to call myself a moderate radical when I was in high school. 
I wasn't completely, you know, I wanted to be radical, that was cool, but you know, I was also moderate. And so, you know, that was the code of the PIGC. Um, and then and they, they came to power and, and they, you know, did not seek to radically transform the regional global environment like other cases like Cuba and the Soviet Union and China. Instead, they actually had very friendly relations with uh, Portugal. And the argument here is that um, this is very different from most other revolutionary regimes. As a result, there is no kind of external threat of annihilation. So this you know, reduces significantly the siege mentality. As a result, so there was no impetus to resolve splits within, within the regime, you know, which exists in every regime, there are splits, right? But because they weren't faced with this existential crisis of, of, of you know, that they were going to be abolished, um, or you know, fear of counter-revolution, there wasn't that kind of impetus to build stronger institutions once they came to power. And as well, you had quite a weak regime. Again, sort of, you have a military coup almost immediately five years after they come to power. And in a sense, you know, because of greater accommodation, in other cases, you don't have conflict. And you know, this is basically what happens, right? Um, so this is, in a sense, you know, kind of work for it. Shows you how variation in our independent variable helps to explain the weakness. So I think you know, this is, um, you know, in a sense, it. It's really, it's not really an exception if you look more closely at the case. Uh, another case of Pol Pot really is simply the exception. Um, it, you know, it's, a, it's, as I'm sure everyone in this room knows, it's among the most radical regimes. They come to power, um, they, they depopulate the urban areas. This is really quite radical social transformation. Um, they end up killing about 25% of the population, um, and the regime ends in, in four years. Now, what's interesting about this case um, is that if you look at why it fell, it was not because they killed a quarter of their population. It turns out, which is a little sobering, or it should be, as a regime, you can kill a quarter of your population but still survive. It's scary, isn't it? It was because they, they, they um, picked the wrong enemy. Vietnam, which was the... Um, had the most powerful army in the developing world at the time. This was um, at the height of the Vietnam War, or you know, right after the Vietnam War. And um, as a result, I mean, what's interesting about the, the Pol Pot case is actually these, these, all of these kind of things worked, right? It had siege mentality. It had you know, state, state building. They abolished alternatives. There was no sort of internal defection within Pol Pot, even though within the, Pol, the, the Cambodian Communist Party, despite the crazy stuff that Pol Pot did. I mean. There's very you know few there's really sort of no dissension from within despite um, the awful things they did but there were and also there were no alternatives right and it was only because they picked a very powerful it was a very small country um, you know Cambodia a very weak state and it was basically invaded by Vietnam which basically abolished it um, and that was the end right um, and it was just very similar to the Taliban story you know they you know which is also a revolutionary regime it was because they, you know, they picked the most powerful country in the world. The U.S. is why the Taliban died. So, you know, um, so what this shows you is that, um, you know, the revolutionary path, the crazy shit, is fraught with risk, some risk, um, especially if you're a very small country like Cambodia or Afghanistan. Um, so, to summarize, um, this, you know, this book seeks to really understand. Um, you know, why you have these sort of hard nut regimes, these revolutionary regimes, which, you know, are both through a great world history and are strong in the face of incredible internal and external pressure. Um, and I think, you know, basically the argument here is that radicalism promotes conflict that in turn create durable institutions and cohesion. 
But there are exceptions, basically one, um, the Guinea-Bissau, if, if in a sense, um, in some cases when the, the, uh, the kind of radical isn't radical enough, means it sort of reduces the siege mentality, which undermines motivation to create strong institutions. And the other cases, like um, Taliban and Pol Pot, in which they, they do have, you know, really real radicalism, but they basically pick very powerful enemies and they are, are, are invaded, and therefore that's why um, the regime collapses. Um, you know, I, just briefly, I, don't, I want to kind of open it up to Q&A, but I think some of the questions, you know, that we're investigating right now are sort of, you know, the, this, a lot of these, these causal mechanisms are very powerful while the, while the revolutionary generation is alive. I mean, our theory does a very good job of explaining durability in the first 40 years, and when some of these regimes face the most severe crisis, you know, it doesn't, what, you know, the second question is, um, you know, what happens in the second generation? And you kind of have different paths. You have the sort of the China-Vietnam past, which is, you know, they just, these, these second generation folks, who, you know, the children of the revolutionary generation decide to sort of, you know, focus on growth and not revolution. Then you have the sort of North Korea path, which is, you know, you know put the metal to the pedal um, um, and, you know, to, you know, create a much more hyper-polarization. Um, and also, just I can talk about this later. Um, I mean, I do think that the revolutionary origins creates the basis of these more sort of classic, durable parties. I mean, you know, this um, of, of this. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know that it creates, you know, basically eliminates alternatives and makes it easier to create these, you know, strong parties. So I think in the second generation, the kind of my guess is that in the first generation, the you know, party institutions per se are not particularly important. They become very important in the second generation after the revolutionary um, generation dies off. But I think I've spoken enough, so thank you very much. All right, so let's open it up for questions. How about we take you know, maybe three questions, and then you can answer them. Yeah. So uh, Ryan? And then uh, Yelena, and then uh, person there in the black shirt, and then we'll uh, and then we'll do another round. So. All right. Uh, thanks, Luca, for the, the great and, and lively talk. Can you go to the the, the list that, of the nineteen cases you have? Sure. So with those, when I look at that, I wonder about the the boundaries separating that set from. I guess the larger set of authoritarian regimes born out of conflict or born in the midst of a revolution. Like, um, I mean, there's a bunch, right? So like Franco with Spain, like, why wouldn't that be in there? My guess is that it has something to do with it not being fully revolutionary, maybe it's counter-revolutionary or something like that. And that makes me wonder about the borderline cases. There must be a lot of those, and maybe you could say something about yeah, those definitely. cases. Maybe? Very much for your interesting and insightful presentation. I have one question and one comment. In terms of, uh, and my question could be linked to the post Soviet field, uh, how would you, would you uh, classify uh, colored revolution regimes in the post Soviet world as being part of your model? In particular, no. <coughs> well, if not, then, then why? And particularly in the case of Kyrgyzstan, and even in terms of Russia after 1991, there was a coup. Uh, that preceded the, the establishment of the independent Russia as opposed to the former USSR. And also, one short comment, when you were uh, referring to World War II and the role of Stalin, uh, it's 
considerable impact uh, was played by the resilience of, of the Soviet people and the unity of the Soviet people, which actually supports the argument that regime sustains in, in the period of threat or chaos. So my question was just around, you, you talked about both um, and um, the Taliban uh, not being so durable because they, they picked such a, a strong enemy. Um, and I guess my question was um, if you could have some insights as to why Cuba was successful even though they were also fighting a similarly close body. Yeah, okay, great questions. First of all, um, answer to your question, which is really important. Um, If we look at this criteria, the most, the, the criteria that knocks out the vast majority of authoritarian regimes is from below, from outside the state. I can tell you there are about, of 350, there are about, um, you know, there are about, literally about 30, 35 authoritarian regimes that truly emerge from below. So that is overwhelmingly, you know, Franco. The vast majority of cases I'm sure you think of come to your mind. Um, are those, you know, and, and for us it's very important because, you know, theoretically because, you know, our argument is that, um, you know, it's the, it's the forming of new institutions from scratch that is a core source of their durability. So, this is a, you know, there are theoretical reasons why we say this. And also, it's also, you know, pretty, you know, intuitive for most, you know, in terms of Scotch Pole and Huntington. You know, these are, you know, revolutions are about sort of overturning the pre-existing social structure. This is not from within the social structure. Um, so that is the primary, and all, you know, many of these regimes also don't engage in, in radical social transformation, but many of them do, right? You, you have revolution from, but that's, but that's really kind of a different kind of regime. So that's um, really the vast majority of, of cases. Um, and um, answer, uh, so what was your first question? Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a totally different kind of, one, a lot of these democracies, two, these are not formed in, in, in extended violence. They're not, you know, none of these um, are, you know, attempts to engage in radical social transformation. They, you know, for the most part, you know, you know, keep the existing social structure. These are just totally different animals. And in fact, one of the things I don't like is sort of this current tendency by Mark Feister and others to sort of clump revolutionary as this incredibly broad basket that includes like all cases of irregular transfer of power. So this is like, you have like, you know, that includes like these cases that are too heterogeneous to really theorize about. So this is a really much more specific case. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I necessarily actually agree with you. I don't think it was sort of the, you know, the unity of the, the, the Soviet people. I think it was like the Soviet people had no choice. Everything else was destroyed. They had no capacity to challenge the regime. I mean, it's not that they necessarily, who knows, maybe they did love Stalin, I, who knows. But what we do know is that they were completely, you know, all leaders could potentially challenge Stalin had been totally wiped out. That's what we do know. So I, mean, I have no idea, I mean, maybe you're right, but you know, I sort of doubt it. But, um, and the other question, right? My question was just around um, Cambodia and Afghanistan, who chose a very strong right. um, enemy and, and therefore, you know, didn't have that durability in my Cuba might have been. Oh, right, you know, that's, a, that's a, actually a great question. Um, and um, you know, one, you know, I think there's sort of probably some contingent explanations, which you know, I think Khrushchev basically constrained um, Castro. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you read Khrushchev's memoirs, you know, he's Castro was like, "Well, I'm doing war with the United States." And Khrushchev was like, "Dude, like, chill out." Like, you know. um, and you know, and the other thing is that, um, in certainly in contrast to Taliban, is that you had, you know, um, other things that don't aren't, you know, like the the fact that you had. Um, Strong superpower support from Cuba. 
um, which is certainly important. Um, so you know, there's certain you know, I mean, I think um, which is important. So I think it's it both both factors. But that's that's actually really important. It's kind of a question that kind of trying to struggle with right now is sort of um, how you understand that. Okay, with Rwanda. Oh, so we, sorry, sir, we put an order here. So uh, here, and then Ferran, and, and then you. Oh, the person with the glasses? Yeah. Thank you for your wonderful presentation. I have a question about the class uh, conflict uh, in revolutionary regimes. Uh, as many of know, China and Russia have the uh, class, class conflict between before the revolution. And then this job uh, power, I think it's a economical foundation is changed a lot due, due to the due to armies. Uh, do you agree the maximum analysis about the, the revolution? Because uh, maximum Marx uh, is the leader of the maximum communist party movement. Marx, you mean? Yeah. Yes, yes, Marx, yeah. Karl Marx. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you agree the idea about uh, and another party as uh, if they have no like peaceful transition? It's uh, also a good place like a. Uh, Okay, um, first of all, um, Marx, um, you know, I, I think um, 
I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure, you know, Marx didn't really investigate authoritarian durability, so it's a little hard to sort of under, you know, how he would have seen this. I mean, this, he addressed a, a set of questions that weren't really related to this, and, and you know, he, would, he addressed, you know, why there was revolution. I mean, we don't really address why revolutions emerge. That's sort of not part of what we're interested in. I think that's a very complicated issue. A lot of people, as I'm sure you know, have investigated why revolutions emerge. I mean, and I don't think it's, I mean, part of it is social, I think, you know, so, social structure is important, but I also think, you know, institutions, I mean, the organization, the party, the repressive apparatus um, is, you know, really essential to this story, um, which, you know, I wouldn't think of as particularly Marxist. Um, um, great question, okay, you know, right, about, right, what, the fact that the Russian Revolution happens changes all the other cases, right, you know, and that's really important, and, and and I think if, if, if this analysis, you know, if I were writing this book in 1989, that would be a huge problem for me, right? Because clearly, um, you know, a lot of what explains the survival of these cases is Russian aid, there's no doubt about it. You know, I mean, um, China gave, I mean, it's quite remarkable, China gave 5% of its GDP to Vietnam in the 60s and 70s. I mean, it's just insane. Um, but, you know, but, but what's remarkable about these regimes with the exception of Yugoslavia, is that they survived the end of the Cold War after the, and so that's one thing, right? And so, so it's not just, I mean, Mozambique, you know, ceases to receive Soviet assistance. And I'm not saying that the Russian level, you know, wasn't important in terms of building institutions, um, but it, you know, it can't simply be understood in terms of sort of uh, superpower support. And in fact, I actually, because of that question, it's such a great question, I actually, I convinced my graduate student to write a dissertation on client regimes, but, you know, and we actually control for that in, in our statistical analysis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, but I think the end of the Cold War is really convenient for us because, you know, you know, many people thought that Cuba would would, would collapse um, after the Soviet Union ended, but it didn't. And so I think it's not. It was obviously not a regime that was simply, you know, propped up by Soviet assistance. Um, the same with North Korea. Um, the same thing, right? Um, and so, I think it's more than that. Um, crazy, shit. crazy shit. Important question. Basically, we you know we define crazy shit as attempts to challenge powerful internal um, or external groups, like seriously challenge the power of internal or external groups. And you know, in this, you know, is uh, in, you know, it could be sort of eliminating capitalism. It could be sort of, you know. Um, challenging the United States. I mean, this comes in a variety of forms, but it's mostly um, has to do with fundamentally challenging the social structure. I mean, Mexico, you know, interestingly enough, a bit of a difficult case for us. Um, I don't to do it. My colleague does it. But you would hear this if we're thinking of the challenge of the church in, in the 20s. This is sort of the most kind of the closest to this. But you know, I mean, it's interesting. The Mexico is kind of almost more Menshevik than. Uh, than, than Bolshevik, and, 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 but I think it is also another, I think, exception to the rule in the sense that they don't have the strong institutions, and you know, many could argue that Mexico survived, you know, not simply because of a strong party, um, but because of growth. And I think, you know, and and um, you know, so I think that's important that it's sort of a, a somewhat case of diminished revolution, um, and therefore relies on other factors that don't have to do with revolutionary origins to survive. Um, Rwanda. Um, Rwanda is, you know, a, a weird case. Uh, basically, included, you know, they do massive population transfers in the 1990s. I mean, this is among the case. Post-World War cases are, 
um, cases which, frankly, we haven't really looked at. It's kind of bizarre cases because you no longer have socialism and they tend to be much more heterogeneous. Um, but I think, um, but you know, they, they, many of the sort of the causal mechanisms appear to be the same. Um, you know, why some became revolutionary, you know, why some of these revolutions emerged and others don't. I mean, it's just, I think it's really hard to predict revolution. Um, many have tried. It's, you know, we, my, my graduate student who is, you know, you know, is trying to come up with a variable that, you know, might explain it. It's just been very hard, so I'm not sure um, we can. But these are quite heterogeneous set of cases. Um, so Lada, Alex, and then I put myself uh, on the list, but um, I'll put you on for the, for the next round. Thank you very much for the presentation. It's really cool. I would like to ask two questions. Yeah. Um, is uh, why Vietnam in 1994? So it was pretty much earlier than 1946. And then my second question is uh, about the present or current system. Of this regime, uh, I think because I, I do research on Vietnam that uh, <coughs> the regime in Vietnam is much less coercive than it used to be, and the, I think I have a suspicion that it is a combination of several features why it passes. Uh, despite it doesn't have such a strong state and party, it does have very strong mentality of this share mentalities of, of this shared history and culture in Vietnam is very strong from what I noticed. Uh, and also I think preparation to compromise for the Vietnamese regime was as well important because lots of arguments are now economical. Uh, so if you can comment on it. Alex? Uh, yeah, thank you for your presentation. Very interesting and entertaining, right, which is always a plus. And the argument very compelling, but I have a question about the causal mechanism linking um, the siege mentality and this mobility. Um, even if you, don't, if you didn't really say this, I have the impression somehow that the siege mentality is a, is a key factor in your model. Perhaps even more important than the other two, but maybe you can contradict me. But about the siege mentality, um, my, my real question, I guess, is what is the role of popular, popular support in uh, this idea of the linking siege mentality and durability? And, and even more specifically, uh, my question is what about psychological underlying psychological mechanisms? Uh, so we know that in situations where, where conflict is very important, for instance, nowadays, where, where terrorism attacks are very likely, uh, psychological mechanisms create a sense of popular support for the government under some specific circumstances. Um, for example, after 9-11, support for Bush went up to almost 80%. Um, yeah, so I guess my, my question is, are there psychological mechanisms related to popular support linking siege mentality and durability? Great, and I uh, would like to ask you, if you could just say a bit more about Rwanda, uh, because it, I don't think most people, uh, I don't usually think of that as a revolutionary regime, so I find it interesting, and specifically what crazy shit uh, have we done? Um, and then also, could you say a little bit about counter-revolution? So, you know, as you know, Dan Slater and others have argued that counter-revolution can also be the source of durable authoritarianism. How does that argument gel with your own? Do you agree with it? 
Um, so first, yeah. So in answer, first, Vietnam, I'm afraid. And, you know, like where they, I would have to call up Steve Lubinsky, I just don't know. I mean, the sense is, I think that they, they, they came to power, they lost power, they sort of well, regained. Yeah. The so I mean, I, I, I just have. I mean, it would be good for us if we were earlier. <laughs> um, so, but I, I just will have to beg ignorance on that. Um, but I do think, in terms of the next generation, I mean, I, I think, and this kind of gets to the popular support issue, which you know, I think. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I, I've actually had a hard time just doing these case studies showing where it matters. And I'm not. I'm sure it does at some level. But it's clear that what really matters is the fact that they eliminate, in, in some ways, the opposite. They eliminate any mechanism for popular attitudes to matter. They destroy, you know, other intermediary associations that would allow, give a mechanism for popular opposition to express itself. So I mean, in a sense, I find that much more. Easy, compelling, because a lot of these regimes, you know, you talk about popular support. There was not a lot of support for the, you know, for the communist regime during the Great Fort when they were killing 45 million people. There was not a lot of support for the Soviet Union in the 1930s when they were like, when the economy was decimated and millions of people were being killed. So it's just really hard. I'm not saying in later periods popular support doesn't matter. I mean, you maybe you could talk about the sectors, but you know, to sort of talk about popular support in these kinds, I mean, part of the, what makes these puzzling is that they, they, they destroy the population. They do, you know, quarter of the population in Cambodia. This is not a regime based on popular support, so it's just, you know, I think the other areas that might matter more, but it's just as a kind of, um, it's just not, to me, you know, on the face of it, compelling that, you know, this would be a particularly important factor. Um, I do think, you know, I think, um, you know, there probably are factors of nationalism and, and, and the like, you know, and certainly in China in a lot of these cases. So, well, you know, you know I think in certain periods it probably does, but I, on the, I, I don't think it's, you know, for the reasons I just outlined, I just don't think it's a particularly central issue. I think it does become important later when the sort of post-revolutionary period, when they do not have, um, when the regimes are sort of much less cohesive, um, and here they kind of become sort of a much more sort of, you know, standard authoritarian regime. I think you know that's where I think in the later periods, you know, in China today and stuff, that it probably does matter. But in the sort of periods when they face some of their most severe crises, I think it's it's probably less important. Um, siege mentality. I, mean, I think um, yeah, um, it's, it is pretty important. I think um, in terms what's important in terms of understanding is not so much popular support, but more um, you know. Explains elite cohesion. You know, when you don't have these parties, this sort of hyper fear of counter revolution. I mean, I think just doing my case studies in the Soviet Union, it, it really helps explain why someone like Trotsky would not defect from someone like Stalin, despite the sort of deep hatred. You know, it's not, um, this was not sort of, you know, old guys who in, in battle together, they loved each other. These are people who deeply hated each other, but they were also deeply terrified of counter revolution. So they, that's why they didn't defect. Uh, so that's why I think it's important. But yeah, but the siege mentality doesn't survive forever. I mean, and what this does is it sort of it actually provides um, a sort of way of seeing um, of measuring the sort of post-revolutionary period. And so I see the sort of post-revolutionary period as happening in, for example, when um, in, in China in the 1970s when they you know make agreement with the United States, and that's really kind of a another era. I mean, you know, when they sort of make a they do at some point most of these regimes, you know, with the exception of North Korea make accommodation with the global environment. So that really is a kind of different stage in the post-revolutionary stage that it demands kind of a different explanation. Um, so it, but it does explain, I think, 
um, some of the sort of first generation when you really have some of the most severe crises. Um, Rwanda, I think I just told you all I know about Rwanda. Um, it is, I mean, I, I looked at it very briefly. It does feel, it's, um, it's a very different case. It's, you know, in some ways kind of non-ideological. Um, you know, it's not really socialist, it's not. But they, they do engage in crazy shit in the sense of these massive population movements, which, you know, counter, um, you know, significant, you know, which undermine the interests of significant groups in society. So it matches, in that sense, the definition. Um, this is not the case for Uganda. This is not the case, I think, for contemporary Ethiopia. Um, so, but counter-revolution. Yes, I'm happy with Slater. <laughs> I think there are. This is not the only way to um, durability. I think counter. You know, Slater's argument about the importance of counter-revolution. Um, I think it's you know it's a big tent. I mean, I think there are other. You know, this doesn't explain Singapore, or you know, um, it doesn't explain a lot of regimes. I think Slater's work kind of captures a lot of some of the. The other, I mean, I, you know, so I think that is important as well. Okay, uh, so another gentleman in the back. Uh, last night, you were giving us a take-home message about looking to the regimes uh, and understanding their, their durability. And, of course, that's a great reminder of uh, how regimes have inculcated extreme fear and zero tolerance. But what's happening in the case of the aberrations of Gorbachev uh, and then Putin today, an ex-KGB man, who has he taken his foot off the brake only? Or, or is he still potentially capable of, of resorting to the extreme measures that were pre-19... Seventy-nine. Uh, it, it seems to me that there are wonderful people in Russia. I spent a couple of years on the finance committee for Greenpeace, and just recently I have realised that there's been some very recent uh, oppressive measures on Greenpeace people, who they are astonishing the fact that they could survive in Russia today, uh, but they are. And this goes to the kernel of, is there a, a, a used-by date in our current world uh, for the model that you're talking or demonstrating that uh, uh, durability is a function of extreme fear and zero tolerance? Thank you. Yelena? It was my first question was accidental. I skipped, I think, because there were too many interesting questions asked. Uh, I, I was referring to power revolution in the post of to the so-called Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, can we, it's not in your table. So why, why don't you consider cold revolution as part of uh, your, your hypothesis? And even uh, Russia after 1991, Yeltsin uh, came to power because of the coup. So why case of Russia for the 1991 that would give you a model? And most importantly, Kyrgyzstan. There's a hand here. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in the, the, the two different parts of China and North Korea. Because it seems like in North Korea, they keep reprodu actively reproducing the caution mechanism you mentioned. But in China, they sort of abandoned the initial communist goal. But they're still sort of lasting. So is, is that uh, sort of revolution origin have a, have a, a very long effect that, that you can linger, even though after the origin is gone? 
or they can be displaced into something else. Uh, so so if, if that's the case, that's a bit dangerous because we'll, even if there's a regime change, the country will remain the same. Authoritarian mentality in some way. So I want to get your opinion on that. So that's great questions. I mean, um, first in response, I think you know, Kurdistan, first you do not have sustained violent struggle. This is not, we're talking about, you know, violent, you know, a civil war, violent struggle for power. You do not have um, radical, you know, attempts to radically transform the social structure. So, you know, can, so it's a really different kind of case. I mean, by, by, by violent, I mean dead people. Like, I mean, like thousands of people dead. So, you know, the coup, in fact, it doesn't include coups, and coups tend to be something very different. Um, and so, you know, those really are, are quite, quite different cases that, you know, um, from these set of cases. Um, um, Gorbachev, I mean, I think, you know, basically what happens, you know, in that Gorbachev is the classic example of what happens in the post-revolutionary period. I mean, in the sense that these guys that emerge, second generation, tend to be um, kind of much less skilled in, in engaging in large-scale violence and much less prone to that kind of activity. Um, and, you know, Putin's regime is just substantially weaker than the Bolshevik regime. You, know, you have a much weaker party, not have... I mean, you have, I mean, Putin's kind of trying to create the siege mentality, so there's a bit of that, but it's nothing like... Um, I mean, it's a much more sort of... Putin's regime is a much more kind of classic, conservative, um, Contemporary authoritarian regime, where the, mo the thing what they really they don't want to engage in radical social transformation; they just want to stay stay in power and get rich, which is most authoritarian regimes. Like that's the kind of class, modern, you know, standard run of the mill, which is not really cohesive. You know, really does. I mean, Putin would love it if you know. I'm guessing if he could recreate the Bolshevik Party, but but um, in the sense of having this highly disciplined organization that backed him, but that's just something not. I mean, those things don't just emerge because people want them to. And that was my point point about Lenin; they emerge out of these large historical processes that are out of the control of actors, right? Um, in terms of North Korea, China, I mean, a lot of this is just really contingent. You know, this is where you get into the realm of leadership and, and contingency. I mean, it just depends on who who is in power. I mean, maybe, I don't know, you know, um, um, you know, you know, maybe if, if Mao had survived longer and, and, and decided to sort of transfer power to his son, his nephew, what was his name, Mao, um, he would have been, you know, he could have done a kind of Kim Il-sung thing, but he would have, for whatever reason, decided not to um, and relied on the party. And so um, I think these things are just simply contingent, but, they're, they're, you know, they are very important. I mean, they're what, you know, you know the fact that um, North Korea decides to sort of Rather than sort of building a new model of, of, of durability based on growth, as in Vietnam um, and China, they decide to sort of amp it up in a sense, sort of, um, which, which you can do, but it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty costly pass. So that's why probably most do not engage in the sort of North Korean. It's a pretty high risk uh, um, uh, path, which is why you know, North Korea is, is unique. I mean, there are many other cases like that. I mean, I think what you have right now in Iran, which is interesting, is a kind of effort by parts of the regime to kind of become post-revolutionary. I mean, I think this is, the agreement with the United States is really kind of a, a classic sort of post-revolutionary period, you know, where they very much akin to China in 1971, where they're really trying to kind of move to the next stage. Um, but there, you know, there's some resistance just as there was in China in 71. And so this is a kind of interesting period now in, in Iran. Um, so I don't know if I answered. Uh, more questions? Yeah. I heard that undercutting of your means just that you the, the, the very interesting phenomenon about that 
revolution and uh, in that this revolution means transport the social order means uh, you have to uh, cause some damage to the society and some uh, people are lost lose their lives but uh, according to Charles Dickens saying I don't want the great great to have the uh, revolution of the French France in old past time but uh, I think uh, for these com these countries uh, they often confronted with these reconstructed their infrastructure, their social view orders, and uh, get a good better life for this back. But uh, unfortunately, like North Korea, the, their life never get better because, uh, as I know, many people escaped from their own country, go to abroad, the country like China, and uh, some people go to the Russian, or uh, some people would, uh, go to other countries. My, can I give you some reasons to explain this phenomenon? Some uh, revolution results always not always positive for the native. Oh yeah, this is not. This, oh. oh, any other questions? Or, uh, okay, go. Yeah, I mean, it, this is not. I you know, revolutions do not end well. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, you know, um, you know, they are first. They're great for authoritarian durability. But they're awful for everyone else. So um, I think that's pretty clear. And but it was interesting. You, you mentioned the French case. I mean, the irony of the French case is that it's sort of, in some ways, the quote unquote the paradigmatic case of revolution. But it, it is unlike any other revolution. I mean, I mean, it's and it also truly does not work for our argument. Yes. Um, and you know, I think. Um, but you know, the only thing I'm confident is that it's really, you know, despite the fact that every in the early 20th century assumed it was paradigmatic. I mean, you know. Trotsky and these guys knew the French. They were kind of were shaped by the French Revolution. That you know, um, but things just did not happen that way. Um, and so it's just, it's ironically the French Revolution is kind of an outlier in terms of revolutionary trajectories. Yeah. I just want to follow up on the previous one. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, you said that uh, you are not persuaded by these arguments that uh, these regimes care about the people. So I'm not persuaded by that because I think I understand that people now in Vietnam are probably not such a danger because all the opposition is pretty much destroyed. Uh, but I think they can become a danger under certain circumstances which are now more and more like like approaching or available. So uh, I think and also like the regime in Vietnam, as I see, does care about people in terms of it, it does want to persuade people that this is their country and they they should love it. And and the communist party in Vietnam is the only one, and if we have to part in some way, are in trouble because that's another conflict. And so I see the legacy of revolution and conflict as being very negative in Vietnam in terms of people fear it and party uses it. But I still do think that they, they do care about people. And that's why they are important. <laughs> There's a question in the back here. So on the, on the French Revolution, I think Robespierre was actually trying to do that strengthening of the party after they guillotined uh, enough of these offenders that they started to really purge from within their own ranks to the point where he himself was guillotined. But it never came out maybe because of education or others to become a the impressive one. But the, the other point about revolution is that 
is preceding the French Revolution. And the reference to the late Philippe Brioche, because they had a couple of years of left summer and bad crop values. Similarly, in the Syrian Revolution, they doubled their population in the previous two decades, and then had, due to potentially climate warming, uh, very, very dry seasons and very, very poor crops for the years coming up. So I think there's, there are issues coming out in terms of environmental factors that lead to revolution that weren't even recognised until recently. recently. Can I might just take another question on, which is this: so the discussion of you know, the French Revolution and earlier talking about Mexico and you know Rwanda. One of the things that's so interesting about this this project is that I know that the French Revolution is not one of your cases, but that uh, you know you have these radically different kinds of revolutions, uh, and yet the holding you know seems to the finding seems to hold uh, for all of them. What I want to know is. Are there any patterns, you know, uh, among revolutionary types? Do say left-wing revolutionary types tend to uh, left-wing revolutionary regimes tend to be more durable than non-left-wing revolutionary regimes, like in uh, Iran or Mexico or something like that? Okay, yeah, that's good. Good questions. Um, I I think a public opinion does matter now in the post-revolutionary period. I think it's really hard to think of, pub of public opinion mattering because the whole nature of these regimes is to um, radically upend the social structure. So by definition, you don't care. Of course you're going to be unpopular with the bourgeoisie. You're trying to destroy them. You're not interested in... in, in and so uh, during these sort of early periods, you know, Mao was clearly not interested in... In, in you know broad popularity with with the landowning class, they wanted they wanted social transformation, and social transformation is inherently conflictual, and so to th you know that's why you know I think it's really but I, but I, you know for the first you know for the first you know decades it doesn't really make sense, but you're right, I mean, it does it does matter um, later on, you know I think that that's but that's why you have to sort of you period uh, it's important to periodize it, and not sort of you know, the different periods. And now clearly Putin, you know, China does care deeply about popular opinion. They thought, they thought, you know, there's been a lot of evidence to the extent they, you know, they really care what the population thinks. But this is not, you know, the great leap forward. If Mao cared what the population, he would probably would have not killed 45 million people. Because they are much weaker now. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of reasons, yeah, it's much weaker, yeah, so that, that's right. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, your question is sort of a separate question, you know, very interesting question of why revolutions emerge, and, I, and that's just sort of, you know, environment that sounds, you know, it's an intriguing argument. This is sort of not what, what I'm doing. It's a, I'm answering a different question, which is once you have revolution, what is the effect of it? But, you know, the, those make sense. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, your question is sort of what's more durable, non-left-wing, um, left-wing. You know, I think part of it, you know, I mean, problem in our case cases, you, know, you sort of highlighted an issue, which is that the vast majority of these are communists, and so the question is, is it simply communism. Um, I mean, I don't think it's simply communism for two reasons. One, because, you know, you had communism in Central Europe, but without revolution, and those did not survive, so it's not simply ideology. Um, and I don't really know, I mean, there's so few, there's so few cases, it's hard to sort of make any kind of generalization that non-left-wing are, you know, more or less durable. I mean, my guess is, you know, to the extent that sort of you know, in the case of Mexico and probably in the case of Rwanda, um, you know, because the sort of effort that it wasn't quite as radical 
as socialism that may may be right that you know a little bit less durable. I mean, Mexico survived for a long time, but I think for reasons that may be exogenous to our argument. Um, and I mean, Iran's a totally different case. I mean, they're you know it's full on radical <laughs> in a way. You know, in, in, you know that um, you know just as radical as any communist revolution, and that therefore you know it fits the model. I mean, you know they also don't have a Bolshevik party, which probably makes a difference, which is why they have more elite defection, but nonetheless, um, so there are parts of the argument that you can trace to the fact that it's not a communist case, um, but it's still, in essence, really fits the argument quite well. Um, so. You should be able to test for this pretty easily, right, the regression, just some, you know, you know left-wing revolutionary regimes versus non-left-wing There's so few cases, kind of, the problem. Yeah. And it's so small. I mean, that's the part of it. There's really, you know, only so much you can do with that kind of analysis. You basically just have to do a case study. Great. Brian? Uh, Luke, can, can you go to the previous slide with the, the little... Definition? Yeah, yeah. The, so this is, the, this is the, I guess, the theoretical core of the, of the paper, or the, yeah, the paper, or book, I guess. So I'm wondering, I'm just, I'm just really stuck on that from below thing. Do you need... Do you need that? If you've got a revolution born of violence and, and what follows is a transformation, a radical transformation of the social order, does it matter if it's from below or above or from whatever direction? So, you know, that's an, probably an empirical question. Um, I, think it, um, I think it matters because most of the regimes that don't come from below are basically military coups. And they're the danger of military coup is, is, is really quite present um, because the military has the autonomy that, that, I mean, I think what makes, um, I mean, this is really just comes from the case studies, you know, from China. I mean, what makes these regimes distinctive? I mean, there's a classic, you know, is the fact that, that coups are sort of off the table for the most part as an issue, it's, you know, and they, and they do a lot of stuff that would normally provoke coups, but that coups just don't happen. And I think that really is a function of the fact that this comes from outside the old state, and they create these, um, these armed forces from scratch, which, provide, you know, creates a kind of fusion between the ruling party and the military that you just don't find in most other cases. Um, and so, and that I think that's why theoretically I think it's important. I mean, you know, um, you know, it's clearly you know cases that don't come from below. Um, you know, some of them are durable. I mean, some of these are sort of the counter revolutionary cases. Uh, so I'm not saying this is the only route to durability, but you know, this is um, clearly I mean, the from below is actually pretty central to the sort of causal mechanism. It sounds like it's central because if it's not from below, you're not really going to get a transformation of the social order. Is that it? Well, partly that, but you're also not going to get the same kind of transformation of the state. You know, you're not going to have something totally new, right? I suppose you could, but it just doesn't really happen. It's very hard. It's very, you know, very. You need some leader, a counter-revolutionary, that then wins and destroys, and then destroys the state that they're a part of. Right. You know. So, you know, I think. I mean, I mean, actually, one of the cases, you know, I mean, um, so yeah, it just doesn't happen, you know, very much. So I think that's why. Um, yeah, and, and also sort of the essence, I mean, just sort of, just kind of, kind of conceptually, you know, the essence of revolution is about radical change, and, you know, this is, um, so it's sort of, intuitively, it sort of feels core um, to the definition. You know, but there are obviously, you know, revolutions from above, but they're really kind of, I mean, you know, different animals, you know, sort of almost like different, um, sort of, you know, different cases. But, um, 
that may you know be durable for other reasons. Um, we are out of time, uh, but that was a fascinating talk. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs>